Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's New Statesman podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Mark Steers the political theorist and leading thinker in the Blue Labour movement, who served as Ed Miliband's chief speechwriter and is now the inaugural director of the UCL Policy Lab, which is launching today. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. And before we get into all things policy, which is what I know you want to talk about, I'd like to ask you about what Labour can learn from the Australian election results, because you wrote an interesting piece for us recently, and you were actually director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney until recently. So you've got a good insight on this. Um, And your piece, and I quote, it's about a populist prime minister known for playing fast and loose with rules and for masking his incompetence by stoking the culture wars and about how the Australian Labour Party beat him. There are parallels with the UK. How did they do it? And what can our Labour Party learn from it? There are loads of parallels, I think. It's a really exciting moment for Labour just to see that it can be done. A year or so ago, I remember I was in Sydney and everybody was expecting Scott Morrison to win the coming general election. He, he was widely considered to be a dreadful prime minister. And yet he just seemed to have the winning touch. And he won the previous election by a surprising margin when people thought he was going to lose. And uh, as I say in the piece, he, as you say, played fast and loose with the rules. He was always doing uh, stuff and getting called out for soft corruption, etc. And yet the Labour Party, the Australian Labour Party sort of crept up slowly and slowly. And then when it got to the election, ran an extraordinarily boring campaign with a slightly sort of gaff-prone start to it. And nonetheless, has come out with, it looks like it will be a majority. And it's a very comfortable victory because the... Uh, Morrison's Liberal Party lost lots of seats to independents as well as to the ALP. And it, it just gave us this sense that what looks like an impossible electoral task faced with a sort of culture warrior, populist politician who seems to have a sort of Teflon touch, you can actually can do it and you don't need lots of fireworks on the Labour side in order to succeed. Yeah, and you actually detail some of those culture wars that Scott Morrison tried to draw the Australian Labour Party into. And we've actually run interviews in the past few months from Tony Blair to Shabazz Barnum Mahmood, the campaign director of the Labour Party at the moment, who've said you can't duck the culture wars, you can't pretend they're not happening. How did the Australian Labour Party respond to those? Did it duck them or did it confront them? It basically did duck them. I mean, as you say, that's <laughs> okay. definitely not the orthodox view. But Anthony Albanese, this I think was his great strength as a campaigner. He pra- 
practice sort of disdain. So every time Scott Morrison would bring up one of these culture war issues, a big one was transgender participation in sport. They got a Liberal Party candidate in the Northern Beaches in Sydney who made a huge deal of transgender participation in sport. And Scott Morrison kept on baiting Albanese to have a big row about it. And, and Albanese just shrugged it off and said, those are the kind of concerns that aren't our voters' concerns. You know, you're sort of making it up. It's not an issue. Common sense will sort all these things out. With decent views of the average Australian knows that this is all just bunk and rubbish. And he did it just f- f- you know, with spectacular consistency, if I'm honest. And every time the Murdoch media or Morrison tried to get it up, they would just knock it back and they wouldn't <laughs> have the fight. And they did make the Morrison culture war stuff just look really small. Okay. And so do you think the Conservative Party in this country are at risk of looking sort of eccentric by constantly trying to bring up these issues? I think that's the hope. I've been you know, talking a lot with you know old uh, Ed Miliband colleagues like Tom Baldwin recently. And that's very much you know, Tom's view from a communications perspective is that you just got to make it look ridiculous and absurd because it, it is ridiculous and absurd. There, there have obviously been genuine big cultural issues over the last decade or so. And Brexit is one of those. Mm. But so many of the themes that the Conservatives try to bring up now are, are of interest to a tiny number of reactionary voters. They're not the sort of pulse of the red wall seats. They're, they're an irrelevance to the vast majority of people who are going through really difficult times right now. And I, I hope that Labour will just you know, say that and say that consistently. PMQs recently, Boris Johnson tried to jibe Keir Starmer by saying, you won't even tell us what a woman is. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I, I think the vast majority of the population know it's ridiculous too, and they're not going to let him get away with it anymore. And do you think that sort of message has reached Keir Starmer? How do you think he's dealing with those questions when they're put to him? What is a woman, for example? Uh, look, I, th- I think the, the, the truth is that the at the moment there are probably three views around the table in the leader of the opposition's office. There are some people, you know, who are very anxious about you know, red wall lost traditional Labour voters who think you have to make a move to the reactionary in order to placate those concerns. There are others who say, no, you know, we're going to lose votes to the liberal left unless we fight the identity wars in a different kind of way. And you've got young voters in London and people potentially leaving to the Greens and you have to make a bid for them with a sort of very explicitly liberal offer. And then there are other people, I think, in the position that I think I've come to after watching the Australian election, which is just saying, just try and demonstrate how absurd issues are, that they're not of major concern to anybody. Most of them are easily resolved through common sense and the British public wants to get on with the proper stuff. And you also write in your piece, there was not much to quicken the pulse about Albanese's campaign. And there was a little parallel that (laughs) rang true for me uh, for what many of Keir Starmer's critics say about his style of leadership. Did you make that parallel yourself? Again, the truth is that when I was in Australia, I was a sort of Albanese critic, probably amongst friends, probably hopefully not in public. But my sense was, oh, God, this is so boring. He stripped all of the interesting policies out of the Labour platform. His moderated rhetoric was reminded me of sort of Neil Kinnock reading the FT in the back of a chauffeur driven car in the back in the day. And he did. He had a makeover and had smart new glasses and a sharp suit to try and get away from his sort of traditional image as a grassroots lefty. And it just felt really tired and really old and really dull. But actually, truth be told, it worked very well for him in the campaign because it just took the edge off those people who had been anxious previously about voting Labour. And it made him look the more serious and businesslike of the two candidates against a sort of shambolic populist in Scott Morrison. I, I look, by, by itself, I don't think it would have been enough. He did need these independent candidates to to make a little bit of excitement, you know, on the fringes, as it were, so that those people who, who wanted a little bit more vigour in their politics had, had somewhere else to go. But as a Labour strategy, uh, look, they'll be congratulating themselves for a long time to come. Yeah, because you describe a small target strategy, which I suppose you could say 
has been sort of Starmer's playbook in a way. People criticise him for not having enough policies or perhaps not having an overarching vision. But, you know, there wasn't much to criticise him for. That's not enough for his... He wasn't really particularly making himself vulnerable apart from this Mr Rules thing that has come back to bite him in recent weeks. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it was harder for Albanese in Australia than it is for Starmer here because Albanese had been on the scene for decades as a you know, leader of the left faction in Australia. And so he had quite a lot of baggage to leave mm. behind if he was going to present himself as the boring centrist to the population. Whereas obviously Keir Starmer is much newer to politics. And apart from the sort of infamous pledges during the leadership election, <laughs> there's not much baggage that he has to, to leave. The flip side is, therefore, people don't really, I think, have a sense of him. And that's probably the challenge still, is that I think Albanese carried some of the more traditional Labour voters with him because they had been vested in him as a personality over many years and they knew that his instincts were socially democratic. And even if this was a boring campaign, he had a sort of long backstory of fighting for the causes that Labour people care about. Starmer doesn't have that. And there are definitely people in the party and the broader movement who are suspicious. He's the Johnny come lately who says one thing and then says another. So I do think, you know, it'll be a slightly harder task for, for Starmer than it was for Albanese. But nonetheless, you can understand in Lotto at the moment, they'll be quite excited what's happened in, in Australia. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and and another similar lesson that could translate across is the uh, success of those independent teals that you mentioned. And there's been talk of this informal pact between the Lib Dems and Labour and you saw at the local election how the Lib Dems and the Greens actually are causing Conservatives trouble in many areas. Is that something that you would, if you were in that office now, you would advise Keir Starmer to pursue? Yeah, I think the the huge thing in Australia was because, so they had these teal candidates who are independent candidates, almost entirely women, uh, and almost entirely sort of apolitical apart from three issues. So climate, gender and corruption is essentially what they ran on. Mm. Uh, very reassuring to many sort of richer, more affluent voters who were worried about big taxing labour or you know welfare state investment, etc. But able to get lots of people excited because climate change especially is such a huge issue in, in Australia. And you can certainly see elements of that here in, in, in conversations around labour, which is that everyone now talks about the blue wall, don't they? Mm. These, these sort of the affluent Tory seats, which the Lib Dems might be able to pick off, which Labour doesn't have a hope in hell of. Uh, and again, you know, that's where the, the similarities are here, I think, is that it, Albanese did an incredible job of not having a formal pact. There was no deal with the Teals. He just ignored them, in public at least, and let them get on with picking off those sort of middle-class um, liberal seats. And here, one imagines that's a kind of approach that Starmer will want to take too, which is public deals with the Lib Dems, because there are seats where the Lib Dems and Labour are battling it out, They're trying to ease away from competing in some of those Lib Dem Tory marginals where you need people to tactically vote in order to get Lib Dems over the line. Mm-hmm. OK, so basically the lesson's so far as ignore everything. <laughs> and you mentioned this earlier about stripping the policy out of the campaign and stripping the baggage away. One of the uh, main criticisms of the Labour Party, particularly from the left, is that they don't have enough sort of landmark policies that they can sell to the public whenever uh, these elections come around. Do you agree with that? You are director of the policy lab. Is it something? Do you see a vacuum there or does it not matter at this stage in the electoral cycle? Look, I, I think it probably matters less at the level of detailed policy and more at the level of sort of a sense of direction or purpose. I think what you need if you're going to be able to govern well having one election is is a North Star, as David Axelrod calls it, you know, something which is going to help you navigate through some very difficult times. And so you probably don't need specific retail-oriented policies, but you do need a kind of sense of 
what is the state of the nation? What are the big changes what we, which we need? What are the paradigmatic moves? And that is where I am, if I'm honest, anxious both about Australia and British labourers. Albanese has won, but no one has a clue what he's going to do. And I think that would probably be pretty similar here right now, which is mo- many people would celebrate the end of Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer arriving in Downing Street. What do we think the first year of a Labour administration is going to look like? And what are the, again, not necessarily signature policy moves, but the, the style of governing, the broad targets the government would set itself, the way in which it would make decisions in emergency situations. I don't think we have any answers to that. And that does worry me, because I, I don't think you could have said that about either the Corbyn or the Miliband approaches. And you certainly couldn't say it about Tony Blair. You like the policies or you don't like the policies. You knew what the sort of navigating principled mission behind it all was. And that's what we're waiting to see from Starmer, I think. Yeah. And it always seems to me whenever I'm writing the phrase cost of living crisis, that this should be Labour's moment. You co-authored that manifesto in 2015. You were on Labour's general election steering committee. You remember a cost of living crisis being at the heart of that, that campaign. Surely now should be Labour's moment. But all we really hear is sort of reversing current policies and suggesting a windfall tax. Yeah, it's a big issue, I think. And uh, it's true on both sides. I don't think it's just a Labour problem. And Nick Timothy had a really interesting column in the Telegraph a few days ago where he was saying, look, we need both parties to be saying the economic model doesn't work. Here's a different economic model, which is going to increase productivity, but also make sure that people aren't suffering the kind of cost of living pressures that they currently are. And that's a sort of big shift. And at the moment, you don't see either, you know, the Tories or Labour seeming to appreciate that you need that. You've got emergency measures, etc., as windfall taxes, and all that's fine. But what you really need, I think, is, as I say, is that sort of sense of uh, a big paradigmatic change in the way that we run our economy. And uh, you're just not getting it from mainstream politics right now. And that is a worry. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review, which is now published twice weekly. Here's our US editor, Emily Tamkin, to tell you more. Thanks, Anoush. That's right. Every Thursday, we unpack the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Make sure you never miss an episode. Just search World Review in your podcast app and subscribe. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
Do you think that there might be a sort of squeamishness within the party about having run on these issues before and not won? Yeah, no, definitely. And look, everyone remembers when Ed Miliband had first tried this sort of, he did this producers and predators yes. and producers speech. And I remember being at Labour Party conference and in the sort of drinks parties, etc. just when the, the, the quotes from the speech dropped the day before he was going to give it. And, you know, everyone would say, you can't say that. You know, you can't, you can't attack capitalism. You can't argue for, you know, structural change in the economy. It's just not OK. And then, of course, during the Corbyn years, you had the same, you know, criticism, which is all this is unachievable. It goes too far. It's ridiculous or absurd or whatever the accusations might be. And I think that's definitely cowed the current Labour team. They're just like, well, Ed tried a version of it. Jeremy tried a version of it. Neither of those work. Therefore, let's just not try it. And look, that may be fine as electoral strategy, but it's terrible as governing strategy when we're confronted by the scale of the challenges that we are confronted by. And that's what makes me most anxious. Mm, Okay. And with the UCL Policy Lab, it's launching sort of a new way of incubating and creating policy that could be taken on by political parties like the current Labour Party that we're talking about. Tell me a little bit about how that works and why you think the sort of policy making ecosystem should change. Yeah, I think that we've been through a sort of technocratic policy making ecosystem for a very long time. (laughs) That There are consultancies, the McKinsey's and PwC's of the world. There are well established think tanks who put out their PDF reports. There are civil servants and then there are sort of policy teams in the two major parties and and I think that's it's done its job it comes up with the white papers and it has the technical fixes but it doesn't seem to me as if it's rising to the scale of the challenges that we're confronted with you know my organizing principle at the UCL policy lab is to say look you, you need big new as I say paradigmatic answers and the exciting thing is that they are out there. You know, there, there are academic departments like, you know, economics and political science at UCL where we're based. But there are also social movements and charitable organisations and grassroots campaign groups full of really exciting new ways of thinking about the large issues that confront us. And my sense has been that just got to channel the energy of that ecosystem into politics, because at the moment, most of that ecosystem talks to itself. It may do some amazing things on the ground or in academia may publish the occasional incredible book, but it's not feeding into the political process. So it's almost as if you've got two rival ecosystems, the think tank, party politics, civil service world on the one hand, and the sort of academic social movement, charitable organisations on the other. And we just got to bring those two things together. And that's what our, our, our ambitions are. Okay. And do you think that there's a bit of groupthink that has set in? You talked about people talking to each other, there is a bit of a revolving door between sort of leaders offices and think tanks. And totally. you often see the same ideas recycled, particularly on housing, for example, over and over again. Totally. And people have very fixed views about what the realm of the possible is. That's obviously derived, you know, largely from focus grouping and opinion polling, which, again, has its place in electoral politics, but shouldn't be telling us or can't tell us what the answers to these big challenges are. Whereas if you step out of that space and into the ones that I've just been describing, you can quite quickly come across all kinds of incredibly exciting arguments. One of the best things I've done in the last decade was my colleague and friend Danielle Allen in the US, who is sort of on the left of the Democratic Party, organised throughout COVID, a kind of online get-together of policy people from the most extraordinary range of organisations, housing charities, migration charities, criminal justice campaign groups. And there was such... Uh, a kind of hubbub of creativity and dynamism 
And then, you know, you turn off that Zoom screen and you pick up The Guardian or whatever and look at what's <laughs> happening in party politics and none of it is there. And we've got to stop that. So is that something that you started worrying about when you were actually working in politics in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Ed Miliband was incredibly conscious of it. And one of the great things about working with Ed was always that he there was two parts of his personality. One, he'd grown up in party politics. He'd been there with Gordon Brown, obviously, and knew the sort of new Labour way of doing things. But he was also very clearly of the view that that had finished and that you needed to do something else. And that something else ought to be tapping into this energy which laid outside the sort of formal political machine. But the challenge we had is that we didn't, in the time that we had, manage to bring those two worlds together. There were you know, various efforts to do so, some successful, some unsuccessful. But it was the right experiment, I think, and the right idea. And we need to get back to that sort of sense of questing for bigger answers to the problems that confront us. And I suppose opposition parties have, you know, far fewer resources to try and cook up these kind of ideas. So something like what what you're doing could be a potential help for Labour in particular. Yeah, and we want to be a safe space too. And I think the other thing is that political parties are terrified of being associated with an idea that turns out not to work. <laughs> and so they're very risk averse by their nature. And they just think, oh, good grief, if that splashes the mail on Tuesday, you know, <laughs> oh, we got two points down in the polls and then my leadership's at stake or what have you. Whereas we can be a bringer together, uh, you know, a facilitator of some bolder conversations, bringing together some surprising coalitions of people, grassroots actors, academics, social movements, charities, churches, so that they can, in that space, generate what we hope will be uh, very compelling big answers to big questions and then hopefully we'll tempt the politicians to to see that that's what they need if they're going to be able to, to you know to rise to the scale of the issues that confront us okay okay so two two policy areas that come to mind where there just don't seem to be solutions include social care which i know the conservatives have introduced their own sort of imperfect cobbled together plan to try and tackle but to be fair to them and housing as well uh, the yeah. sort of overcooked housing market take one of those or both of those and tell me how you would go about doing that differently. I mean, I think the social care one is really interesting because so you had Andrew Dillnot, for example, one of the smartest people in the UK and has been at that social care issue for so many years now and has come up with so many you know, brilliant policy fixes. And yet we've got this political logjam that still nothing happens. And it's absolutely disgusting. And nothing should be more important to us as a nation than caring adequately for you know elderly people. It's just extraordinary that a country like the UK can't get that right. Mm -hmm. And it's even more extraordinary when you've got people like Dilnot who are able to come up with many of the technical answers that we need. But the problem is the politics. And again, I think it goes right to the heart of what I've been trying to describe, which is that we're not short of ideas and we're not short of an appreciation of the scale of the challenge. What we're short of is a political process that actually does things with those ideas. And, and we've just got to we've got to break through on that one. So I think the social care housing, I think, is also you know, very similar, which is that there are so much brilliant housing research in the UK, again, partly in universities, mm. partly in social movements, with all sorts of extremely exciting new ideas for how you fix the housing affordability challenge. And when I was at the New Economics Foundation, we did an awful lot of work. Yeah. in that regard. And yet it can't find its safe political home because there are too many vested interests and there are too many electoral anxieties and the power of that front page of the mail is still too, too great. And so that's the thing I really want to try and confront our frontline politicians with, which is how much longer do you want to go on 
knowing that the energy and the ideas are out there, but not doing anything with it. Like we just, that's just not an okay state of affairs. Mm. But if we don't grapple with it now, you certainly aren't going to be able to grapple with it in the first year of a Labour government. Yeah. Well, good luck with it, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us about it. Great pleasure. And I hope everybody will you know, come along to UCL and get involved because what we're trying to do is break down as many barriers to the policy process as we can, hear as many voices uh, and facilitate as you know, many provocative conversations as possible. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian and my guest, Mark Steers. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.